I I have met GSA Emily's in my lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> Look, is that her real like? Is that her like black Twitter name or something? If not, yes, that's is. what we call her on no Twitter. Is GSA Emily, <laughs> okay. and to me, these are people who in business have overinflated themselves and their title to mean that they are more important than the whole than you know the whole of the company they've decided me and my little fiefdom like what we do is what actually matters and what the company does needs to take a back seat to that interesting and it never works out well for these people they might have their little day in the sun but ultimately things always end poorly for that person Hello, and welcome to Wind Down, Build Up, the podcast giving you the tea and the tools to succeed in business. I'm Tabitha Solomon. And I'm KJ Miller. Today on the show, it's tea time. So this is the show where we like to look at the week's hottest headlines and just discuss what, if anything, we can learn from them. You know what? We did this episode uh, idea over the summer, and not only was it a hit, but it was so much fun. It's so it much fun. Like ripped <laughs> from the headlines and use like whether it's a massive, you know, success, smashing success, or a massive failure, and see what we can learn from a business perspective. Yeah, so I'm excited to dive in. All right, so since it's tea time, the tea and the tools will be mixed together throughout the episode. And this week, we're talking about four top headlines. I know you guys have been reading these. First up is GSA Emily, okay? Homegirl. (laughs) (laughs) Homegirl who's been holding up this Biden transition process. So we're going to dive into her first. Then we're going to talk about NYC schools shutting down after only eight weeks. That's been in the headlines a lot. Yeah. Then, now not everyone may have seen this, but J-Lo got a lot of heat on Sunday for her performance. (laughs) People felt like she was still in Beyonce's entire vibe from the 2014 Grammy. So thought we'd throw in a fun one. Um, And finally, this is, I just saw this today, but Dave Chappelle convinced Netflix to remove Chappelle's show from their streaming service. So I think a lot to learn from that. But like I said, let's jump off with homegirl, GSA Emily. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So what do we think about her and and what's the story there? Well, why don't you give everyone an overview on what went down first and then let's rip it apart. (laughs) Yeah. So (laughs) if you aren't familiar with GSA, so GSA stands for General services administration it is an arm of the government and in the white house that essentially like um leads procurement um so like in any you know company you have a procurement team that's responsible for buying the things that the company needs um they lead procurement and they do a few other things but but mainly procurement so now when a president is elected it is up to this person who hangs the GSA, in this case, her name is Emily Murphy. It's up to this person to um, give, essentially transition, start off the transition, kick off the transition to the new president. 
So she releases the funds from the procurement team. In this case, it's about $7 million so that that person can start spending and getting set up the way that they need to so that when they hit the ground on January 20th, they're ready to rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Okay, so well, homegirl, what she decided was that she was not, in fact, going to release the funds. She was not going to kick off the transition process because Trump was still throwing his temper tantrum, pretending like he may have won this thing when, I mean, he lost by so, 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 so many votes. (laughs) (laughs) It's like ridiculous that we're even having the conversation. But Emily Murphy decided look, I'm the boss of this little team here, so I'm not going to release these funds and I'm not going to kick off the transition until I personally feel good and ready. Never mind what all the states are saying. Never mind what these courts are saying. Until I feel good and ready, I'm not going to release these funds. So that, at least now that's how I interpreted events. (laughs) Okay. Yes. Uh, So what what is your take? You know, I think that Emily... you know, I think this is going to be one of those instances where we have varying points of view on things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Emily was stuck between a rock and a hard place, right? So I think her quote from the Washington Post was really interesting, where she shares that there was really no precedence for a situation like this, where a sitting president has legal challenges, um, who is making a ton of claims, Granted, they're baseless, but making large-scale claims that are circulating globally on different news channels uh, and newspapers. Um, And she felt like there was really no standard of process. And what do you do in this scenario? You know, when Al Gore asked for a recount, like, a recount was granted. And Emily was saying, well, he's asking for a recount. And she felt like when she had a recount, in particular for the swing states that were the ones that were essentially the ones that would actually be able to impede Biden's election uh, election win and turn over to Donald Trump, that she had to essentially wait for proper certification legally from those states before she could give her stamp of approval. And the other big thing to keep in mind is that she was appointed by Trump. So I feel like everyone knows if you cross Trump, Trump has no problem cutting you at the knees, uh, embarrassing you, ridiculing you in the public, along with firing you publicly. So I think a part of her, you know, was like, I don't know what to do in this situation. And then another part of her is coming from, you know, obviously like this selfish angle where she doesn't want to be in that latter situation. So I really think that I don't know that she was being malicious or, you know, I think that she was stuck. Um, because of the circumstances and the predicament, and she needed to wait for uh, these legal certifications, essentially, to give her the air and essentially a, a, a legal uh, buffer to then declare Biden the winner. Okay, well, I think that's a very gracious <laughs> interpretation <laughs> of GSA Emily's actions. <laughs> And, you know, I, I, I get where you're coming from in that one, I agree. Trump is her boss. Trump is a very spiteful man. He's powerful. At least he will be for the next couple of months. And, you know, she's looking out for her self-interest in a way because of what he might do. Mm -hmm. That said, to me, the precedence is clear it is always in the role of the GSA administrator to 
begin the transition to the apparent presidential winner. And the word apparent is always there because typically this happens like within a week of the election and usually states haven't certified within a week of the election. So it's always like the apparent winner and there have been recounts in the past and the transition has still been allowed to go forward because what's understood is that if he's not getting the intelligence briefings, if he's not getting access to the money, if he can't get his start getting his team set up, there is a real, um, there is something that, uh, or a real risk to our national security. You know, like mm-hmm. this, that means that we just have a gap yeah. and, you know, foreign adversaries can start to take advantage of that gap. So to me, anyone who was really trying to put country before themselves would think to themselves, even if we somehow learn that this apparent winner isn't the winner, the worst that can happen is he's not going to spend all $7 million, right? Mm -hmm. The worst that can happen is he spent some money getting his team up and running. And it turns out that that's money we didn't need to spend. In the grand scheme of the federal government's budget, that $7 million is nothing. It's peanuts. Mm -hmm. So there's really no real harm done. But in the event that he turns out to be the winner and you've delayed this process, there is real harm done. And, And we look weak and we look off balance to the rest of the world because we can't even we can't even manage a peaceful transition of power which is which what we go to countries preaching and send our army to inflict upon other countries so i just think it is in this like to me this is a woman who put herself first put her boss first didn't think about the safety of our country, didn't prioritize the peaceful transition of power, which is sacred to our country. And I just don't have any respect for her or her little letter (laughs) trying to act like, oh, I did this because I'm just trying to do the right thing. No, girl, the right thing has been done for many, 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 many years. You had plenty of precedence and you decided not to follow it because you were on your ego trip and I'm not with it. Now, what do you think, KJ, we can learn from uh, Emily here, uh, Emily Murphy, in this entire situation? Because I, I one thing I will agree with you, and I, I listened to the Daily Podcast where they talked about this, when Al Gore asked for the recount, there actually was a delay of transition from the... Uh, from uh, Clinton's administration to George Bush's administration. And a lot of people kind of point to that situation as part of the reason, not part of the reason, but kind of a tie to September 11th because there was that gap in intelligence, just like you said. Um, So I think that, you know, a a pretty glaring one is like the negative impact from the lack of, you know, transition. But from a business perspective, what do you think we can learn from this story here? Yeah, I guess the takeaway for me is I I have met GSA Emily's in my lifetime. (laughs) (laughs) Look, is that her real, like, is that her, like, black Twitter name or something? Yes, that's what we call her on Twitter, GSA Emily. (laughs) And to me, these are people who in business have overinflated themselves and their title to mean that they are more important than the whole, than, you know, the whole of the company. They've decided me and my little fiefdom, 
like what we do is what actually matters and what the company does needs to take a back seat to that interesting and it never works out well for these people they might have their little day in the sun but ultimately things always end poorly for that person so I think one lesson is you know the whole is greater than the sum of its parts and I have seen people really crash and burn at companies because they start thinking my world or my position or what I do or my contribution is so much more important than everything else that's going on here. And that I think often leads to disaster. It means you're not good at working well with other people. And eventually I think is, is a lot of people's downfall. So that's one takeaway for me. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, that's a really interesting perspective. I mean, (laughs) I'm very gracious, I guess, when it comes to Emily. So I think, you know, this, this is a completely different perspective, but like when I'm looking, you know, whether it's to hire people or even when I was working in corporate America for, uh, you know, different roles, people will look at a lot of different criteria, right? They'll, they'll often go to things that in, in my 34 years experience matter less, right? So like people care a lot about the pay and the title and, you know, even the scope of work, et cetera. For me, mm-hmm. what I've realized, the number one thing is who do you work for? You know, because they will, they can make or break your career. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And so for me, you know, again, because I'm coming at it from a different perspective, um, her boss is Trump. And Trump is not someone who's going to give you a positive airtime, give you limelight, give you opportunities to grow, excel, you know, not going to develop you. They're going to put you in shitty positions like this, where I feel like you're in a lose-lose scenario. And the best bosses I've ever had gave me coverage, gave me mentorship, gave me opportunities Mm. to grow, you know, uh, acknowledge my stellar performance publicly, you know, chastise me and, uh, uh, you know, develop me behind closed doors. Uh, When I did the work, they gave me credit. Even in this situation, Trump was like, well, I approved for Emily to move forward, you know, and Mm -hmm. Emily had to come out and say like, no, he didn't approve me to do this. Like I made this decision on my own because I now believe that this, this is a time to move forward. Um, So for me, it's just a reminder that at the end of the day, like who, who you work for is the most important decision um, that you'll make, you know, in your job. So it's always about the people. You know, if you're starting a business, it's who is your co-founder? That's the most important decision. If it's, you know, you're working for someone, it's like, who's your boss? You know, it's probably going to be the biggest most important decision. So keeping that in mind and not discounting its importance. I think that's such a good point. And I think there are a lot of people, I mean, we've seen over the last four years, people get burned by Trump and then they have to come out and do this new circuit where they like uh, talk about how terrible he is. Right. But the reality is this man has always been terrible. Right. You signed up to work for a terrible tyrant of a man. Right. So you can't be surprised that he turned out to be a terrible tyrant <laughs> of a man. Like, so yeah. I, think, I think you're right. You have to be um, really thoughtful about the people you sign up to work for because there are going to be real consequences yeah and you know there's this famous quote i think oprah was the one who might have said it first but when people show you who they are believe them the first time (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah yep that's it 
Um, okay, so should we move on to the second yeah. headline of the week? Let's do it. So this is interesting. You mentioned the Daily. I, I first listened to the Daily episode about this, about New York making the decision to shut down their schools after only eight weeks of being open. Um, so if you listen to the Daily, you can hear the episode. You can also go to the New York Times and read the article about how de Blasio essentially kind of backed himself into a corner on this yeah. one. But the the very short version of the story is this. When de Blasio over the summer was um, wrestling with, you know, whether or not to open schools, he made it clear he very much wanted to. And of course, he got a ton of pushback from teachers, from the teacher union, from, you know, school boards, from principals. Um, and so he made a promise then that if the... Uh, like, uh, what do you call it? Positivity rate mm -hmm. for, for COVID tests reached 3%. He'd shut back down the schools. And to him, this was his way of saying like, I, of course I care about safety first. So I'm going to put this um, metric in place. And if we hit it, we close. Mm -hmm. So then fast forward to now, it's eight weeks later. Schools are actually going pretty well. And he hasn't put that same you know, extreme mandate on the rest of the city. So in New York, you can go get your nails done. You can go get your hair done. You can go eat inside at a restaurant. You like, there are a bunch of things you can do indoors because they don't have this strict mandate that he, that he put on schools. But when schools hit that 3%, which happened last Thursday, I believe it was, the school shut down. Mm -hmm. And of course that caused a huge uproar because the New York public school system, I mean, this is true for a lot of public school systems, but particularly in New York, it really is more than a school system. For mm -hmm. some people, for some students, it's the only place where they're getting a square meal. Yeah. It is the only place where they're safe from domestic abuse every day. It is, you know, it's, it's essentially their home in lieu of a home mm -hmm. because their home life is so broken. Mm -hmm. So when that's what your school system is operating as, and then even for the, even for the homes where it's not broken, you talk about the fact that kids are doing a terrible job absorbing anything via remote learning, according to all these studies. And you have a generation of students that feel like they're being left behind. Mm -hmm. Of course, people are going to be really upset. So there's just been such extreme backlash so that's that's the background and I'm just wondering what's your what's your take you know this is what kills me Governor Andrew Como I think a lot of people have a crush on him right now because like he was just so domineering and just like such a leader when the pandemic happened he was mm -hmm. you know so much communication with the public letting people know how we were doing on a daily basis, had a very clear plan and strategy. He was streaming mm -hmm. his full PowerPoint presentation to the plan. <laughs> so everything was just so transparent. So I think people just fell in love with his leadership style and no bullshit approach, right? Like he just mm -hmm. said it mm -hmm. how it was. And when he failed, he would say like, look, we failed here and we're going to fix this. And he would fix it. Now, you know, because of that, Como has gotten a lot of love, attention, glory. And when de Blasio was kind of stuck in this really crappy situation, Governor Andrew Como actually called him to offer mm -hmm. him a strategy. And, and the recommendation was to keep 
you know, the schools open at least for a few more days so they could put a, a full plan in place for a lot of situations you're talking about, right? Like what happens yeah. to these kids, you know, they're stuck in domestic abusive homes who are not getting food. What about the teachers? Like, who now have to transition to virtual learning so abruptly. Like, there was just a lot of thinking that hadn't been done yet. It was just like, nope, we hit the number closed, you know. Um, mm-hmm. This is what the public felt like. And instead of stopping and listening and having the conversation, the mayor rejected and rebuffed him altogether. Yeah. And for me, that was a big red flag, right? Because a lot of people are losing confidence in you, but people believe in Andrew Como right now. So I can imagine if Andrew Como came out and did a joint press conference and, you know, said like this is our plan. Now this is I think this is a pride situation with Bill de Blasio, right? Like in my opinion, a good leader is surrounded by other stronger, exceptional leaders and they're going to them for counsel, especially if they figure something out, right? And so instead of listening to this person who's, you know, done an extremely, in my opinion, a very good job, at least with the PR of the pandemic, um, he completely rejects his counsel. And I think that for me is a sign of ego, a sign of poor leadership, and a sign that he probably doesn't have the right people in his camp to tell him to take that counsel. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. When I saw that, that's a piece of the, the story I hadn't realized um, until I read the article that he had rejected that um, advice and that call from Cuomo. And I agree with you. I think that's just such a sign of ego. Like, even if you had the conversation and decided like, okay, I see where you're coming from, but this is what I think makes more sense. Right. But like, you didn't even do that. Right. And, and, and so I do agree with you. I think that's such a sign of ego. And, and, and my takeaway from this, um, my main takeaway was, you know, the fact that he truly did back himself into this corner so prematurely by setting this, this metric that by the way, a lot of health experts feel like, really isn't backed in science. It's not like 3% is some magic <laughs> number, right? Where it's like, oh, it's at 3%. So, you know, the whole shit's about to fall apart. Like, no, that it, it, it really is a number that he picked somewhat arbitrarily and then tied himself to it, like hung a noose from it, essentially. And, you know, as a business leader, I think about the fact that, you know, when I'm asked to give numbers, when I'm asked to say, what are you going to do next year in terms of your revenue? Or what are you going to hit in terms of your gross margin? I never, ever, ever just give one absolute number. Mm. Never. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, I would never be like, oh, 15 million. <laughs> you know, like, like that's crazy. <laughs> that's, that's insane to me. I always give a range between 12 and 15. And, and then I qualify the range. Mm-hmm. I don't just give the range. I say... 12 is, you know, I think a, a good, a good goal for us. It's a stretch goal for us, but it's still like within reach. And here's why 15 is an extreme stretch goal for us. And here's why, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'm, and I'm going to give context to each of those things. And so then look, if I'm below 12, I've already said 12 was a stretch. Mm -hmm. And if I'm above 15, then that's just the best news anyone's ever heard. But again, because I've given that range, I'm not locked in. I'm not tying myself to anything. I'm not backing myself into a corner the way de Blasio is. I think what he should have done early in the summer is say something akin to, look, I'm going to continue checking in 
with my health experts, with my scientific experts, with Governor Cuomo to make sure that we're doing this as safely as possible. Right now, we think that if positivity rates are somewhere in the three to 7% range, we're still safe or, you know, two to 7% range, we're still safe. Once we get to seven, that's when we're going to start having the conversation about what a shutdown might look like. So you're still giving them guidance. You're still letting them know. And I'm not saying those are the right parameters, whatever they are, but you're giving yourself a range and you're, and you're, and you're, and you're leaving it open to a certain extent. I just think he was too quick to tie himself to a specific number. And I just think that almost always goes poorly, whether it's business or politics. That is such a good lesson. Um, Oh my gosh. And I think that to your point, uh, having a range is helpful for almost any metric, especially if you're sharing it with the public, because they're going to hold you accountable. They're not going to forget. It's going to be in the press, you know, and once it hits that number, both sides are going to be shouting at you. You know, the people right. who want the schools to remain open, it's like, it's only 3%. It just hit that. Why are you moving so fast to close things down? And then the people who want it to be virtual are going to be like, it hit 3%. When are you going to close it? It's time to close it. You said once it hit 3%, we're closing down. So like, you're right. Like he backed himself in the corner uh, from both sides. And unfortunately the consequence now is that the public has lost trust in him. You know, if you take a look at the folks who uh, run the education department and this, you know, he's always the mayor de Blasio has always, you know, shouted and um, amplify the fact that he is the biggest supporters of educators, but the educators do no no longer support him. And Mm -hmm. they feel like he is not up for the moment. And, um, since, you know, we are, this is our podcast. We can talk about whatever we want. I've met Ray McGuire a few times who is now running for mayor of New York. Mm, And mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. think that he's the right person that New York needs right now. I think he is a fresh approach and all the things that we're talking about, knowing his leadership style, like things would have turned out very differently if Ray was the mayor of New York. And I'm super Mm. excited about him running. And I'm hoping that, you know, I've, I'm one of those people who fled New York during the pandemic, but I'm hoping those who are there vote for him that we see that change that is very much needed. Yeah, amazing. All right, well, okay, it is time for um, the third headline. A bit more lighthearted. This is is a bit more lighthearted. So I don't know if you saw this, but J-Lo, she performed on Sunday night at the AMAs. and she performed her song with Malu- Maluma. I, I don't I've actually know who this person. This person. <laughs> um, so sorry if you're a super big fan of his. Um, but you know, people quickly on Twitter and afterwards were criticizing her because they felt like she stole from Beyonce's whole vibe and look from the 2014 Grammy performance. Now, I have definitely seen the 2014 Grammy Beyonce <laughs> performance because I never miss a Beyonce performance. And for those of you who don't recall, she performed Drunk in Love. So she was hot off of having released Lemonade, um, not Lemonade, self-titled, her self-titled album that took us all by storm. She stopped the world. And um, so she, this was basically her first live performance of any of the songs from that album. She performed Drunk in Love. She had on, she had this wet bob, you know, so like wet hair and this cut in this little bob. She was on a chair doing this very, very sexy little dance. 
Um, and it was everything. Okay, <laughs> J Lo. <laughs> now fast forward to Sunday. J Lo. Oh, and and a Beyonce had on all black, like a black bodysuit, very very sexy. Okay, Sunday night, J Lo in a black bodysuit with her hair cut into a wet bob and writhing all over a chair sings her little song none of us have heard of. (laughs) 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 Okay, Jay. (laughs) And the internet was upset. Now, I have a great number of thoughts about this, but I'm going to start with you. What what are your thoughts? And did you watch the performance, by the way? I didn't watch the uh, performance, and I, I started to realize I'm just old, you know? Like, <laughs> I was like the AMA was on. Uh, so I, I think we're going to have varying points of view on this also. I know you stand Beyonce. I love her too. But J-Lo's team credits the musical Chicago, as their inspiration so although they have a side-by-side photo of Beyonce and J-Lo I don't think that Beyonce was the original of that sexy leotard you know bodysuit outfit with a hot chair and a bob there's a picture from Chicago which I've seen um, actually when I was in London for their version of Broadway and it's very much reminiscent of that I think it was a song Fever when they were doing that hot sexy dance and I think I think JLo's team is not lying. I think they were paying an homage to Chicago, probably the same way Beyonce's team was paying homage to the Broadway Chicago. And it just happened both performers look similar. So I, I believe JLo's camp here. I don't think that they were copying Beyonce, but hey, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, once again, that is a very gracious take. <laughs> and okay look I here's the thing here's the thing and look I'm gonna just go ahead and say it JLo has a long history of appropriating black culture specifically stealing from black women artists and not giving credit where it's due her history in this game is so long she has tried to steal songs from Mariah Carey she has tried to steal songs from A. Marie. She has stolen songs from Ashanti. And in my opinion, looking at several of J.Lo's live performances, she has absolutely stolen from Beyonce. And this is not the first time. I thought her Super Bowl performance, she absolutely was ripping on Beyonce. It looked very familiar to me. A lot of the dance moves and such. Um, and I just think that that is honestly... Part of her legacy. Now look, JLo's beautiful. She's talented. I'm not trying to take away from her actual talent because I do think she has talent. I just also think, and the receipts prove, part of how she got where she is is absolutely on the backs of Black women that she hasn't given credit to. So because I know all of that about her, it's hard for me to look at this and think that her team didn't in any way have Beyonce's performance in mind because particularly given the wet bob now yes in Chicago that song cell block tango yes they're in black and they're dancing there are chairs okay fine but how long has it been since the average person has seen Chicago many many decades how long has it been (laughs) since we all collectively watch Beyonce do her thing in drunken love that was just a few years ago so I just feel like, mm, yeah, okay, you have a credible out with the Chicago story, 
but you also have a history and a reputation. And based on that, you don't get a pass for me. You know what's That's interesting is um, I was walking past my sister's door because um, I think, you know, I'm, I'm essentially like when I fled New York, I came down to Florida to spend time with my family. My sister's here also. And she heard you saying all the stuff J-Lo did a rip off like all these black women she was nodding her head ferociously and she's like yup yup <laughs> and I was like oh okay well I clearly didn't know J-Lo's history you know that makes me feel a little bit different but I still want to believe her camp um because again the side by side by all three women the the lead from Chicago J-Lo and Beyonce all look the same so like who's stealing from who then does that mean that J-Lo bit from Beyonce and Beyonce bit from Chicago, you know, like, I, I don't know. And there's a lot of history of, uh, of Beyonce. I went to this really brilliant talk once um, and they were talking about Beyonce doing something similar. They're like, Beyonce's always stealing performances and stuff like that from everyone else from around the world. And her American fans don't realize she stole this from this Brazilian person or this African person or whatever. Um, but I think the difference, at least in this talk, that it was actually this gentleman who was explaining this. Uh, it was a white guy who he actually had done research, like academic research on Beyonce, which is really interesting. Um, and he was like, the difference, though, is like when people say that she bites, it's unfair because she actually gives credit almost every time. Um, like, you know, if you're looking uh, at like Black Parade, you know, she doesn't just like steal or appropriate i mean she can't really appropriate it's, it's her culture right like she's african-american um mm-hmm. but she always gives uh like she'll include them in a video she'll acknowledge in the credits like she gives homage and that's the difference here and i from the sounds of things j-lo doesn't do that and so that's when yeah. we call it stealing yeah absolutely and so to me that's that's probably my biggest takeaway if we think about this in terms of business i mean look you might say there's nothing original under the sun, right? Which I think is, is sort of the point you're making. Like, well, maybe J-Lo got it from Beyonce, but maybe Beyonce got it from Chicago. Like, you know, maybe there's nothing new. <laughs> and, uh, you know, okay, maybe I could buy that. But I, I, I think that, like, if you know that what you're doing is, is, is coming from another culture, another person, another group, another whomever, give credit where it's due. Shout a person out. Don't be afraid to share the love. I think Beyonce has built such an amazing platform and such an amazing empire that way. Mm-hmm. And, and she has continually shown the love. Yeah. So, and, 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 and given credit where it's due. So I think whether it's business or something else, like, you know, whenever I'm on a panel, like I always take the time to try and shout out other women entrepreneurs because it matters to me that like, look, first of all, these, these women are helping me. And second of all, like, I want to share the love, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. like, I don't want to come up by myself. I want to come up together. Right. And I just think, you know, life is more fruitful that way. And that would be my, my takeaway. Here. Yeah. No, I think that's good. I think it's good. And then the last one, we won't have too much time to cover, but I think what Dave Chappelle has done with Netflix is really interesting. Um, do you want to talk a little it bit is. about that? Yeah. So the story here, just for anyone who doesn't know is, when Chappelle left his show, the, um, from, uh, what's it called Comedy Central, the contract that he had originally signed with them basically stated he would not get paid for any future airings of his show. He'd get paid the contract that he signed for that season, for his work on that season, 
but he wasn't entitled to like future pangs, future royalties. So now um, Comcast has sold, not Comcast, Comedy Central has sold the show to streaming services like HBO Max and Netflix. Dave Chappelle didn't make a dime from that. And so Dave Chappelle has went to Netflix and said like, look, this, this doesn't make sense. Like it hurts my feelings that you guys have done this. I've done so many specials for you guys. Like we have a good business relationship. I don't think this is right. And what surprises me isn't that he said that to Netflix. What surprises me is that Netflix said, okay, right, right, right. Like Mm -hmm. (laughs) took it down from their service. So I just think one, I mean, my, my takeaway from that is like, ask for what you know you're worth, Mm, you know, mm -hmm. like even if, even if you sign some contract and you don't have the legal right to it or whatever it may be, because he said on Instagram, like, look, it's legal for Netflix to air this. It's legal for HBO to air this, but is it right? You know, this show, this show that I wrote that I spent my time on that bears my name, Mm -hmm. I'm not making any money from, is that right? right? And I think we all know the answer to that. Right. <laughs> the, the answer, no. of course, is no. no. And for Netflix to take it down, I thought showed such character on their part. Yeah, I completely agree. What do you think, though, about Viacom CBS? Because they're still airing it on like HBO Max and their other networks. Like, I have to imagine that he's probably asked them too, and they're like, like, fuck off, you know, because they're still airing yeah. it. Like, and yeah. So it's not right for them to do it, but it's legal for them to do it. Yeah, I think, you know, and what Chappelle has basically asked his audience to do is like, look, please don't watch until they pay me. Oh, um, really? And I think that that is, um, a, you know, a smart move on his part. Now, whether or not people will take him up on that, I don't know. But I think that's a smart move on his part to to say, like, you know, I've built this audience. If you guys care about me at all, if you care about my art at all, please don't watch yeah. this. You yeah. know, like, um, and, you know, I hope that Viacom CBS will do the right thing. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. But I think certainly it shines a light on how these sorts of deals get done and maybe at the very least helps the next artist not sign a similar sort of contract. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, I guess for me, this one is probably obvious, but I just feel like we're always hearing stories of people not doing this basic fundamental thing, which is like, read your contracts, push back on your contracts. Like just because someone hands you something and there's a number associated with it, don't sign your, don't sign until you feel like your intuition, your gut, you know, until you feel good about it. Like, you yeah. know, I just, I feel like we're always hearing these stories of people getting taken, taken advantage of because maybe they didn't understand the jargon in the legal contract. Like, hire someone to help you with that. You know, like, it's yeah. worth the investment. Um, yeah. Take time to sit, if, you know, like, take a few days to actually read it. Don't have to read it all in one sitting. So you're like falling asleep looking at it, you know, or glazing through it. Like, this is your life you're talking about. And this was millions and millions of dollars that Dave Chappelle forfeited from not actually like pushing back on that clause in his contract. So it sounds basic, but I feel like it needs to be said, like read your contract, negotiate, push back. Yeah. And I think um, 
beyond like you reading it and beyond having lawyers read it, one thing Amanda and I always try to do when we get presented with terms from anybody is benchmark it. Absolutely. We try and ask people who, you know, whether it's coming from a retailer, we ask people who have gone into business with that retailer, whether it's a partnership we're doing, we ask, you know, people, other people who have put together partnership deals, like benchmark it so you have an understanding of where you stand based on where other people stand. Um, And the other thing is, I'll say, because it's interesting, I actually, Amanda and I had the opportunity today to guest lecture for HBS. They taught our case again, which, you know, super Mm -hmm. exciting. And um, one of the students asked, like, you know, basically, like, how did you decide which investor, which investment firm to go with and, like, make the decision about who would be best? And I was like, well, that assumes that when we were first raising money, we had the luxury of being selected. And the reality is when we were first raising money, that's not really a luxury that we had. By the same token, you hear all the time about the first season of a TV show, the actor's making almost no money Mm -hmm. because no one knows if it's going to work out. You have very little leverage. At this point in his career, how many people were really even Dave Chappelle fans when he wrote that first season? So I could understand if he had a shitty deal on season one. I don't understand you having a shitty deal on season two. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. (laughs) Like, did I have... Oh, no, because what you're saying, I mean, we don't have time to get into this, but that just reminds me of like Friends. And I don't know if you've seen the latest episode, or not, excuse me, they, there's a Fresh Prince of Bel Air reunion on HBO. Mm-hmm. Um, have you seen that, my team? Yes, I watched okay. it. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like Janet, the first Aunt Viv, she had a contract and uh, the real Aunt Viv. <laughs> that's so we can agree <laughs> on that one. She is definitely the real Aunt Viv. The real Aunt Viv. <laughs> <laughs> but she was made for that role. And, you know, when her contract, uh, when her contract, she realized like she was getting underpaid um, and she was like, if I'm getting underpaid, probably everyone on this, on the set is getting underpaid. And there's probably a number of reasons why that's the case. Why don't we band together and all ask for more money? Cause we have a hit show. Like people are skipping Monday night football to watch our TV show. You know, it's like a cult yeah. favorite and Will Smith essentially was like, no, I make enough money just because you don't. That's kind of like on you. And that was really frustrating because you saw what friends did. You know, they Mm -hmm. were a blockbuster hit and they also felt they weren't getting paid enough. So they band together and they all were making, I think it was like a million dollars an episode because they like. Yeah, by the last season. Mm -hmm. You know, and so, you know, when we talk about contracts here, it's like friends took the right approach they were like look we don't like what we are getting let's stand in solidarity and push back together so we can essentially like make more money collectively and so Dave Chappelle he is a talent you know so he has the power and he can say look we have we didn't know to your point if this was going to be a hit in year one but this show doesn't work without me because guess what my name is on there I write the sketches I bring the laughs so I'm going to need more and I'm going to need this contractual amendment. And I think he would have had the power to do that. And so, you know, yeah. I think you're absolutely right. Like, you know, it, it would be nice if you could do that in season one. But if you can't, like, you have the power, just like you have the power to ask Netflix to pull it off. He also had the power and you have the power to ask for amendments for in your contract when, uh, when necessary. Yeah, Absolutely. Whew, all right. Well, those are the headlines for the week. That was so much fun. <laughs> Again, so much fun. I hope you guys learned something. And um, we, we got to make this a more regular episode because I, so. I think it's super I fun. I think so, too. Well, 
Well, that's it for this week. If you're loving this show, pause right now and subscribe. Subscribe to us wherever you listen to this podcast and be sure to give us a five-star rating and tell a friend. Yep. And if you have a topic you'd love us to dive into, simply send us an email at windownbuildup at gmail.com.